Hey, this is Nick DiMatteo from Music Is Not A Genre. I just wanted to take a minute to talk to you about the service I use to record and distribute my podcasts. If you haven't heard about Anchor, let me tell you from experience, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Here's why. It's free. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. So please take a moment out. If you are planning to create, record, and distribute podcasts, take a look at Anchor. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Hey, I'm Nick DiMatteo, and welcome to Season 5, Episode 2 of Music Is Not a Genre, MXG. I almost have those hand gestures down. Keep the suggestions coming. Thank you, as always, for watching and listening. Don't forget you can support this podcast at patreon.com slash musicisnotagenre, where you can also support my band, Wreck. My first creative love. You can support the audio version of this podcast at anchor.fm slash music is not a genre. The public hub for this podcast and so many other videos is youtube.com slash Nick DiMatteo. My site is nickdimatteo.com where you can find everything else I do, including this and Rex Music. And of course, last but not least and most important to me, Please go to recarea.bandcamp.com. There should be a watermark somewhere in one corner here of this video. And if not, it's rec, recarea.bandcamp.com. And support Rex Music there or wherever you stream music. Let's get right to it. Season 5, Episode 2. It's kind of the first proper episode of this season as Episode 1 was the A to Z and, you know, uh, season preview and all of that stuff. This one is actually about a specific topic, and that topic is James Taylor, the resilient epitome of a singer-songwriter. And I think I will start by saying that here is how I define singer-songwriter. There are two ways to define it. And this is the reason why I put that in the title and the reason why I said James Taylor is the epitome is because the first way to define singer-songwriter is as a genre. And as you know, I'm not a big fan of that. So I'm going to say what we traditionally know as singer-songwriter genre is someone who writes their own words and music, sings those songs usually playing either acoustic guitar, piano, a light electric guitar, something something kind of mellow. That is how we think of the genre of singer-songwriter. And that can encompass uh Carol King and James Taylor and and you know Jim Croce and some other people that I might mention later. All of those that really when you think of it you also often think of it as 70s uh, even though that style of music uh, pre-existed that and has continued since then. But this all means nothing to me, really, because the true definition for me of a singer-songwriter, as I am one, is this. Someone 
who writes entire songs, words and music, and sings those songs. Period. There's no stylistic or sonic qualification to that. So Prince, singer-songwriter. The certain members of bands who do their own solo work, singer-songwriter. Paul McCartney, singer-songwriter. Wreck, me, singer-songwriter. It doesn't matter. Stevie Wonder, singer-songwriter. It doesn't matter what the music sounds like. There is heavy metal music out there. You could go to a band, uh, Tame Impala, singer-songwriter. Heavy, anything, any kind of music, light or heavy, any, uh, hip-hop is a version of singer-songwriter music. Some of it is. If that hip-hop artist produced their own music, their beats, you know, created the music behind that and the lyrics, of course, and then performed that, that to me is a singer-songwriter. And I'm, I'm stating that right now for a couple of reasons. One, because... When I get to the idea of James Taylor being the epitome, it's the epitome of the genre singer-songwriter. And I don't want you to think that that's how I define singer-songwriters in general. And two, because I recently saw a couple snippets of another fairly well-known dude's podcast uh, on YouTube... And I won't mention names because I think fine guy, actually really knowledgeable and an experienced guy in the business and all that and, and, and at many levels and a, and a teacher and so many things. But he, to me, kind of epitomizes something different, which is the, the older white dude mourning the, the loss of rock and roll or some earlier kind of music, kind of like the guy mentioned in episode one that I, who was the fill-in drummer for another band I'm in, Prefab 4, uh, who is in some ways stuck in the past to different degrees. And it makes me, it, it compels me to define singer-songwriter more broadly, as a really as a counter to people with that kind of a mindset, to people who think, well, no, the true definition of a singer-songwriter is somebody who, you know, like I said, a Gordon Lightfoot. I don't know. You know, I can keep naming names, mostly from the 70s, uh, Joni Mitchell. All wonderful. And I'm not saying these are all wonderful people. But to me, that's just just a narrow band of singer-songwriter. Now, within that narrow band, my all-time favorite happens to be James Taylor. So let's get to this topic. James Taylor, uh, I swore I had more CDs of his, but as I don't listen to CDs anymore, I don't know, and I guess it doesn't matter if you're looking at this closely, it is the very first ever Greatest Hits compilation uh, from James Taylor, which spans only to 1976. Uh, He had several more Greatest Hits compilations uh, subsequent to that. And I will say I've listened to everything. I recently, about a week ago, finished James Taylor's Chronolography. And if you are not an MXG fan, then you don't know that that is a term I coined, chronolography, meaning listening to an artist's entire catalog, however you define that. It can include live albums or compilations or not. And for me, it's just the the main albums and EPs and singles in order. In chronological order. And so I did that starting with James Taylor's mid-60s band Flying Machine. 
in which he worked with the guy who ended up working with him as a co-writer and producer and musician for years and years and years. I forget the guy's name. You can look it up because I'm, I'm not here to provide, you know, uh, uh, all the details. Uh, just impressions. I'm impressionistic or I'm expressionistic, whatever you want to say it. And that didn't go anywhere. Uh, but some of those songs did end up on later albums from James Taylor. Now, before I get into his history, let me do just a pop, just a pop history, quick, quick, quickie history of singer-songwriters in general. Uh, there, If you think of uh, the medieval era, and I'm sure this may, may have pre-existed that, but we, we think of that as, as those kind of bards traveling around, performing either solo or with other troops, with a troupe, and singing songs that they wrote. That, to me, that's a singer-songwriter. You flash forward to the 19th century, and this happened in many, many, many countries. Um, chanson is a type of you know, singer-songwriter music from France, uh, from way back. Italy, a cantatori, which I believe means a song author, so songwriter, you know, something like that. It's a, it's a um, portmanteau, Arr, words. And uh, you can go, you know, country by country by country. 19th century, with the rise of sheet music, these singer-songwriters would travel around, play their songs in hopes that people would buy their sheet music, which back then was a single. You know, it was, it was the way uh, musicians sold their music. There was the obviously the performing money, which some earned, some didn't. And then there's the money for buying the actual song. And without recording, what do you have? You have sheet music. Uh, the modern coinage of the term, which I'm getting a lot of this from Wikipedia. I will confess I get uh, quite a few things from there. And I think that's totally fine. It's fairly well managed. Um, that modern term, it was a, it was a counter to what was happening in the early mid-20th century, which is that there were a lot of anonymous songwriters or songwriting teams, kind of uh, the, the Tin Pan Alley, even a little later than that, the Brill Building, and, and um, you know that was sort of more transitional. And even though we now know today a lot of the names of those wonderful songwriters and songwriting teams... They weren't the performers and they weren't meant to be in the spotlight. So along comes late 40s was the first time it says, Wiki says it was used, but through the 50s and then bam into the 60s, the idea of singer-songwriter, which kind of converged with this rise of folk, country folk and folk music, uh, even, you know, pre, even pre-Bob Dylan. Um, the guys, no, oh, geez, you know, my brain is just not working great, but I'm forgetting the name of the main dude. And Hank Williams would be one of them. Pete Seeger is another one. But those kinds of uh, singer-songwriters, you know, we don't necessarily think of them as, again, epitomizing that genre, making me angry. But they were. They were singer-songwriters. And so that kind of, that kind of boomed in the 60s, in really in large part because of Dylan, because Dylan found a way to take that folk music and popularize it, you know, and certainly influenced a bunch of other people. And on and on and on until you get to the mid-60s, late-60s, and then, and then the 70s is where the singer-songwriter, as a genre, really boomed. 
uh, and like I said, Joni Mitchell and, and all of that. You can go back to people like Billie Holiday, however, to me, singer-songwriter. Any song that she wrote, that obviously not once she covered, but yes. And James Taylor's covered songs too, but if, you know, anything he's written. Chuck Berry, I mean, yes, yes. And Jerry Lee Lewis and people like that and, and Little Richard, these people who wrote their own songs and then sang them. Those are singer-songwriters to me, even if it's not the quote-unquote genre, you know. And among that, of course, James Taylor. James Taylor's first album, 1968, was released by Apple Records. If you're a Beatles fan, a rabid fan, you probably know this because uh, when they started that record company, James Taylor was the first or one of the first artists that they uh, signed and fell in love with his voice and his writing and all of that stuff. And there are classic songs on there, which I'll touch on when I talk about this uh, compilation here, Greatest Hits, for a specific reason. But that was kind of uh, right around the time of the explosion of that and Carol King's Tapestry and, and Joni Mitchell and, and so many others. Subsequent to that, you had Jim Croce and you had uh, Harry Chapin and, and um, you know, just on and on and on especially, again, in the 1970s. But to me, that also includes, and uh, yeah, Jackson Brown kind of straddled that line, I think known mostly as a singer-songwriter. Billy Joel is a singer-songwriter. Duh, right? Elton John technically is not because he does not write complete songs. He, he writes the music and does a wonderful job. Stevie Wonder, yes, singer-songwriter. And honestly, to me, one of the absolute tops in any genre, but even including singer-songwriter. You know, the 80s, there was Prince, yes. Phil Collins, yes. Phil Collins, solo, singer-songwriter. And then Tracy Chapman and Joan Osborne, people who were more traditionally thought of as singer-songwriters in the 90s, Sheryl Crow, same kind of thing. But then you have Alanis Morissette and Tori Amos, those are singer-songwriters. Courtney Love, why am I mentioning her again, you know, the second uh, podcast in a row? Because I like to nudge, you know, I like to get a rise out of people. I want you to tell me why Courtney Love is not a singer-songwriter, okay? PJ Harvey, yeah, Jeff Buckley, uh, Nick, I, I released some of my uh, first professionally recorded material in the 90s under the name Nick, which I talked about last episode, Going through the O's, Elliot Smith, Connor Oberst as Bright Eyes, and on and on and on. And then, like I said, from the beginning, there were hip-hop singer-songwriters. And of any other genre you can think of, singer-songwriters exist in those. But why do I say James Taylor is the resilient epitome of a singer-songwriter? Well, if you know anything about James Taylor, you know that he's had somewhat of a rocky personal history. Uh, mostly because... He had major drug and mental health issues and claims to this day that he's still going to therapy and all that. So he's still, you know, he's smart enough to know and self-aware enough to know that, you know, when you have certain types of mental health issues, you just have them forever and you manage them and you deal with them. It's, it's sort of like being an alcoholic, you know, you, you are an alcoholic even when you're not drinking. That's part of the, the mindset there, but you're managing it and you're finding a way to get through it and uh, make your life better. And that's what he did. And 
has managed to have hit albums in almost every, well, yeah, in every single decade since he has started. 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, O's and teens. Uh, and then I believe even his 2020 album was pretty successful. And we'll get there. I'm going to do a bit of a, you know, uh, discography of his. And he's gone in and out of relationships. And, you know, he's had children a lot. And his children have become musicians, some of whom perform with him. And, you know, he's been a protester and he's certainly very liberal. And he has, you know, thrust himself into the political arena and somehow, through all of it, he's been remarkably consistent. He's one of those artists who never overdid anything. Which means there are very few tracks on any of his recordings where you can say, oh, this sounds so stereotypically 70s or 80s or, you know, or any or 90s even. Production value wise, yes. Uh, you can hear the difference as time goes on, and sure. But in terms of the choices, the production choices, let's say, you know, I'm not talking about reverb on a snare or uh, a bit of a boomier bottom, uh, those are 80s, 90s references, or dry like in the late 70s. Uh, I'm talking about are you including certain types of sounds, keyboard sounds, uh, other instruments that really pinpoint you to a certain era? He rarely did that. And I know this because when I did his chronography, I was really struck by how I could listen to his 2015 album and so many of those songs just in, in terms of quality and production could have been on any of his 70s albums or his 80s albums even or in any decade. And for someone to go through life struggling in the way he has, and I don't mean struggling financially. I'm not equating him to people who have life much, much harder, and neither would he. But a personal struggle is a personal struggle. And for someone to struggle personally on those levels and still produce quality work whether you are a machinist or an accountant or a lawyer or a musician or an actor is a testament to resilience and to focus and love and all of that. And clearly James Taylor has all of those things. I mean, this is, you know, being recorded in September 2022. He was just on Colbert, you know, so he's still doing his thing. And I guarantee you, he just put a single out with Zach Brown uh, I guarantee you he's working on another album at some point. I know he's touring now, but I'm sure he'll put some more music out soon. And let's get to that music. So I mentioned uh, his James Taylor, 1968 debut, Apple. He then moved to a different record label. I'm not into Minutia. If you want to know the record label, look it up. And, and release Sweet Baby James, which was his breakout. That made him famous, basically, even though... You know, uh, there there were some wonderful, absolutely wonderful songs on James Taylor, one of which was Something in the Way, which if it sounds familiar and you don't know James Taylor songs, think of George Harrison's Beatles song, Something in the Way She Moves, was basically ripped from that. He was working with James Taylor at the time, heard James Taylor's song, and it inspired him to write that song. 
Now, the two songs, other than the line, are not similar in other ways, other than their mellowness, I guess, uh, and some parts of the, the content. But, uh, you know, George Harrison was very open about saying that was where his inspiration came from. And it is a beautiful song. But then Sweet Baby James, 1970. 1971, Might Side Slim and the Blue Horizon. 72, One Man Dog. 74, Walking Man. 75, Gorilla, a favorite of mine. Uh, just the way it was produced and the, and the flow of the album, the song content. And I'm kind of blowing through these. In the Pocket was 1976. To say that on every single one of these albums, he had a hit. And uh, most of those hits were self-written songs. A couple of them were covers, including a Carole King cover. Uh, and if you know James Taylor, you know uh, which songs I'm talking about. I'm going to squint here. And You've Got a Friend, of course, is that one. You know, but Something in the Way She Moves, uh, Carolina in My Mind, Fire and Rain, you know, Sweet Baby James. Country Road is probably right at the top of my favorite songs of his. I did a cover of it live in 2020, which you can find on youtube.com slash Nick DiMatteo. Look for Country Road. Um, and there are some other favorites, which I'll get to when I get to later in his career. But that's that's what I'm saying. Now, uh, every artist signed to a label will release a single from every single album. Not every one of those singles is going to be a hit. Unlike James Taylor, who had hits through the early 80s and then uh, you know, came back strong in the 90s and early 0s. So then you get to 76, we talk about this greatest hit scene. And now the reason why uh, I alluded to it earlier is because there are songs on here, particularly uh, Carolina in My Mind and, Ste- and uh, Something in the Way She Moves, that are not the versions from the 1968 album because they couldn't get the rights to those versions. So he re-recorded them, you know, eight years later. And I never knew that. You know, I grew up listening to, to this, listening to these. You know, I got into, I knew of James Taylor most of my life, but I got into him really in the late 80s. And, you know, as soon as CDs were a thing, I bought this, you know, and that's really how I absorbed his stuff and, and really did have no idea that those were not the original versions. Uh, they're wonderful. And there's also a live version of Steamroller on this uh, compilation album, which rare for me to say, very rare, I prefer to the recorded version. I'm usually not a big fan of live recordings, unless you're talking about jazz. Uh, and I guess classical to some degree um, is just, it is live in just by nature of the way it's done. Passing through that 1977 JT powerhouse album, and you know if you've heard me talk that the late 70s through the early 80s is my favorite production period. Second favorite being, I guess, uh, like mid-90s, let's say. And um, I'm not going to do third and fourth favorite, even though they're popping into my head. And there's a song on that JT album, Secret of Life, which I didn't know until two things happened. One, I watched this show called The Orville, and it was featured there. And I thought, oh, this is such a great song. Where'd they get it from? And when I found out it was James Taylor, it blew me away even more because I'm a fan of his. And then I listened to the chronography and said, oh, that's where it's from. That's the album it's from. Great album. Flag, 
79 didn't do as well, but did well enough. Uh, and it's another favorite of mine, again, probably for production quality, but also uh, there's a personal, you know, every a lot of what he does is personal. Uh, but I'll, I'll stop here and just say that as a songwriter, he's able to tackle political and personal and, uh, you know, personal meaning interpersonal, but then uh, and specific topics, you know, Mexico, if you know that song and and you know things like that and jo- and even jokey songs and philosophical like secret of life and so many other things in a way that Dylan has done and Van Morrison has done and I mentioned those two artists for a particular reason one I greatly prefer James Taylor to either of them but two I think he sort of sits in the middle of those two because uh, Dylan, quintessential singer-songwriter. James Taylor, to me, has had many, many clever turns of phrase and stories that he's told through his music. And I'm going to say it, is a better singer and guitar player and is better at writing concise material. Now, that's not Dylan's objective most of the time. When he does it, he does a great job. But that's James Taylor's thing, writing concise material of many different flavors and then he also is not just a folky guy or a rocky guy. He's actually damn funky. And I think that's the reason why I gravitate towards him more than some other singer-songwriters. Jim Croce would be a close second in that era, let's say. Because there's a funkiness there that he has maintained throughout his career. Some of that has come through with the way he plays or horn sections or the, the musicians he employs. But a lot of it just comes through his voice. Listen more closely. Listen to his version of Day Tripper, the Beatles song, and hear how funky that is, you know. Now, I'm not saying he's the funkiest, you know, person in the world. That would be ridiculous. Um, but he's probably one of the funkiest, you know, uh, unknown, lesser known, funkiest white dudes, you know, that has been around for this long. Um, I, I don't know. That's, that's quite a statement. But, you know, refute it then. Tell, tell me that. And that, to me, is kind of what Van Morrison was going for with the soul and everything. And I, and I did or do like a lot of Van Morrison's earlier stuff. And, you know, I, I understand what he does and I respect it. I'm a little sour on him right now for recent reasons, but that doesn't take away from the fact that his music has been excellent. I just happen to think that if you took Dylan and Van Morrison and melded them together, you'd get James Taylor and you'd get a better artist overall. That's my uh, tangent. Let's get back to this discography. 1981, Dad Loves His Work. It was the last album he did before getting clean and going methadone and all that stuff and really trying to... At the time, he and Carly Simon were not getting along that well. They'd been together for several years and he, you know, they had a kid or two and he was a workaholic and that was his statement. Dad Loves His Work and... So that didn't work out. <laughs> and then after that, had breakup and all that stuff and him getting clean. He released an album in 1985. Uh, that's why I'm here. And what's interesting, and again, it goes back to what I talk about certain production values. His quality and his sound did not suffer the 80s the way so many other 60s and 70s artists did. Uh, you, you, there were some artists who were able to transition successfully from the 70s to the 80s like like Journey, Genesis, 
uh, to a degree Chicago, although, you know, depends on what you like or don't like with that band. Can't get into them. It would take another hour. But James Taylor didn't really change. He just did his thing. And he did it through, again, every decade. And again, that's why resilient epitome of a singer-songwriter. Never Die Young was his 1988 album, which was well-received again. But to me, it was New Moonshine in 1991, which was the beginning of this amazing renaissance run. Not that... Not that his quality was lesser at any other time, but but it just even stepped up a notch and certainly commercially stepped up a notch. Tracks one and three, super, super favorite. Uh, I believe Copper Line is number one. And 12, his version of The Water is Wide. And this would have been right around probably when I saw him in concert in Philly at the uh, formerly known Man Center for Performing Arts. I think it's still called that. Uh, Great venue. If you've never never been to Philly and want to, you want to hear music, go to Philly and go to Man or whatever it's called now and check it out. And then I'm going to say it, 1997, as much as I love his classic material, Hourglass is my favorite album of his. It's my top favorite album of his. As an album, as, a, as the way it flows, every single track is a great track. You know, uh, line them up, and and just uh, there's a feeling to that album that is both warm and uplifting, and there's some melancholy to it, and introspection, and all of this, and 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 uh, kind of global reach to it as well. And to me, it's in many ways the pinnacle. Although some critics would say October Road 2002, because that was also nominated, and it continued his hot streak, and it actually ended a streak for him in some ways. Uh, great album. And I'm, again, I'm going to say, if you don't know James Taylor, first of all, where have you been? But second of all, A, listen to this Greatest Hits, or the this one plus volume two that looks exactly like this. Listen to those two, and then listen to Hourglass. And then go wherever you want. But those would be my recommendations. Uh, after October Road, he did a bunch of covers albums. He did a Christmas album, uh, which stemmed from an EP uh, released in 06. He did a covers album, then a covers EP in 08 and 09, and then did a lot of touring, etc., etc. Didn't put out more original material until 2015, before This World, which I thought was a very solid album, kind of similar to the stuff he did in the 80s, let's say. Again, like remarkably consistent. Uh, I kind of want to listen to it again because sometimes towards the end of a chronology, I rush a little bit. But then he releases American Standard in 2020. And, and, you know, here's the thing with this. I am not a huge fan of artists who cover standards. I don't care if you're Michael Buble or Rod Stewart or wherever your vocal range comes in. Most covers of standard songs, ones that have been done over and over and over, are just lame in one way or another. They're, they're, they, they don't cut it for me. Now, if you're a fan of that artist, totally get why you'd want that. Because then you're like, ooh, one of my favorite artists. It's like when um, U2 covered Night and Day. Yeah, Night and Day, you are the one. Their version blew me away. But it's because I love U2. You know, and when, when I do my YouTube uh, podcast, which will probably be late late this season, 
We'll talk about their polarizing you know, qualities, but also about how much I love them. But if you're not a fan of somebody, who cares if they do standards? Right? There are very few. And even when I'm a fan of somebody and hear a standards album, I'm like, ah, man, okay, I get it. They love the music, but what are they doing with it? Thing is with James Taylor, you know what he does with it? What he does with everything. He plays guitar super, super well and sings the way he sings. And because he does that, because he doesn't try to croon it, because he doesn't try to make something wildly different out of it or over, overdo it in some way, he's able to bring out the lyrics in these amazingly written songs in ways that others just gloss over because it's a sound to them. Because their voice is doing this, you know, whatever it is. Or doing this! I don't care. Does, you know, great for them. And I say that because there were two songs, one very well known, one should be better known, God Bless the Child. If you know anything about music history, you know that song. The, when I listened to the lyrics, him singing the lyrics, it made me realize how relevant it is today. Them, that, them that's got shall get, and that's not shall lose, is pretty much the story of the economic world, especially in America, and especially today. You know, and then you've got to be ter- carefully taught from South Pacific is one of those out of its time songs that talks you've got to be taught to hate and fear. You're not born with that. Your relatives teach you who to hate. You know, uh, how you're brought up teaches you who to hate. And it it's yes, it's been said more deeply and more significantly subsequent to that. And prior to that, even in many, 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 many ways, you know. Billie Holiday's song, um, it, it comes to mind. Forget the name, but you know what I'm talking about. Uh, Strange Fruit, I think. And this one is one that deserves a listen, though, because, again, the way he sings it, it's just, it, it gave me some chills because you're like, again, this is what's gone on in the world since hundreds of years and forever, really. Uh, but it's so prevalent right now because of how polarized our society is that it makes those, you know... Lyrics relevant, and he released this album, I believe, in February of 2020. So it was before everything exploded, even though things had exploded before then, you know. And do you remember this? Do you remember this song? Something I'd like to say more in my pockets. Do you remember this? Do you remember South Pacific? If you do, do you remember that song? You've got to be carefully taught. And if so, do you remember how stark those lyrics are? Uh, I'd love to know. Uh, hit me up with comments. That's that's my rundown of James Taylor. I, I hope that I've shed some new light on what he does, that he's not just the fire and rain dude, beautiful song. Yes, Carolina, my mind, and all of the, you've got a friend and all the wonderful hits he's had, but that he has a, a breadth and depth in life and funkiness and just a, a dynamism to the work that he does. And his personal growth shows... I won't say it. Yes, it shows through the lyrics to some degree, sure. Uh, But it it just shows in his career. Um, And I've certainly been influenced by James Taylor. I've done a few folk. Folk has been a part of my, folk rock has been a part of my singer, songwriter uh, palette for decades, since the beginning, really. And, you know, I'm a restless soul who doesn't like to do one type of thing. That's why music is not a genre for me. Uh, Roast recently... I think the song Real Life from Symphony for the Weird is a great 
you know, I don't sing like him, in, in particularly in that song, but you can hear how it is a singer-songwriter E song, very simple, um, and there's a funkiness to it as well. And that, to me, like all of that is where James Taylor, you know, comes together uh, for me. And I brought it out in that song. And it was a song I wrote uh, on the spot. I was uh, doing this, originally, this acoustic guitar part that sounded a little bit like a Bittersweet Symphony by The Verve. And it's morphed, it morphed, you know, subsequent to that. But then I just started singing, what's going to come out of my mouth? And it was about, you know, exiting a part of life from which you might have been slightly asleep or in a daze or not very self-aware and then realizing that, oh, shit just got real. This is real life. And that's what that is. And this song features, uh, believe it, track 16, don't, don't quote me, on my band Rex brand new album, which I am so excited about because I just finished putting it together today and uploading it and all of that stuff, because I record these in advance, it will be debuting very soon after the debut of this podcast episode, September 30th, 2022, Rec Collection, Rec Collection, The Best of Rec, 2007 to 2020, every single track on that album has been remastered. It is the, the best stuff from eight albums from that period of rec in anticipation of a new album next year. But if there's a place to start, it's start with rec collection at recarea.bandcamp.com. You'll hear the upcoming song at the end of this podcast on that collection. And every track, it will be like you've never heard rec before. Especially if you haven't heard rec before. Uh, thank you, as always for watching and listening and commenting and, and everything that you do behind the scenes for me. Uh, because my objective here, as always, is music, conversation, and connection. I'll talk to you next week. I used to play my songs All by myself in a lonely I used to write my words But no one else in the world but you But now I'm on my own Not quite sure who to direct them to Though I keep playing on Hoping one of us figures out the truth it's a real life It's a real life It's a real life Like it never was before Like it never was before Oh
only half of a whole Why am I asking you Who believes the universe is dark and cold Yeah, I've been on my own Writing words without any ears to know But I still play my songs Hoping one of us finds a better way to go It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points. 